Hello and welcome to Note Doctors Summer Shorts. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In these short episodes, we will be sharing with each other and all of you musical examples and teaching tips covering a wide range of topics. So if you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Welcome back to our first ever book club. So we are in the midst of Philip Yule's book on music theory and making music more welcoming for everyone. We have um, done two episodes already in our book club, looking at the intro in chapter one, and then our last episode was on chapters two and three. And now we are going to be looking at chapters four and five. And the fourth chapter is titled On Volume 12 of the Journal of Shankarian Studies. And so if if you know the backstory, you kind of know where this kind of gets a little juicy um, with where all th- a lot of things go down. And, and so we're going to kind of talk about kind of our impressions. Um, before we get into the, the chapter and our thoughts, though, uh, Ben wanted to mention something that because he has a connection to this particular chapter. Yeah, of course. I definitely wanted to start by saying I will fully disclose and be very upfront about that. I was involved with the JSS, and you can read the ad hoc review that you know states how I asked to be taken off of it and earlier, but most of you probably already know my opinions on a lot of this just from listening to my discussions on here and in other mediums, but although I wish I could you know, just give my viewpoint, I can't. I can't comment on it because of the lawsuit, so I just wanted to be very upfront about that um, from the beginning to everyone. I, so. Uh, this is not the the chapters about what happened with the journal, mm-hmm. and we we maybe even should explain that in a second. Here, I can summarize for listeners who are like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> you might not know, um, but the, really, it's about this much larger issue that is living at the heart of our discipline that has to be addressed. And so, I don't think we, you know, necessarily have to get into the nitty gritty of what happened with the journal so much as talk about what all of this represents. But if you, you know, if you aren't aware of this, you haven't read the New York Times article about music theory. I mean, when does that ever happen? But um, (laughs) back in the fall of 2019, Philip Yule was the um, one of the keynote speakers at the Society for Music Theory annual meeting where he gave a version of his forthcoming article called um, Music Theory's White Racial Frame. He gave that as a talk, and everyone that I know who was there was blown away and impressed and really valued what he had to say um, in that talk. And it opened their eyes to lots of things they hadn't thought about before. But um, he does take a pretty direct, this is true of the article as well by the same title, that there's a large section of it devoted to Heinrich Schenker and Schenkerian analysis in general, and how Heinrich Schenker's racist views impacted that. We talked about that a lot in the last episode. So in response to that, uh, the Journal of Schenkerian Studies um, created an issue, a whole issue of the journal 
devoted to responding to to Phil's talk. Um, and while they did post a call for proposals, um, many of the writings were solicited specifically from authors, and it did not go through the traditional peer review process. Right. Um, and you know, we're not probably going to delve into the details of every single article, but there's a lot of problematic um, things in the article about all sorts of things, our fields, whiteness, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And so, um, yeah, that's what happened. That's the gist. So one of the things I found interesting um, in, in Yule's introduction in this chapter is he says that volume 12 of the journal, which actually is not available online, it's it's been taken off the website. I think you can still find probably these articles somewhere. It was flying web. crazy at the time. Yeah, at the time. So, but yeah. Ask any, any theorist from the time and we have a PDF of it for right. you. But, but <laughs> you can't find it. If you, if you look no. at the journal, it'll show that the last issue that was put out was volume 11. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with the lawsuit as well. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. So, yeah. But he mentions that this whole whole deal that came out was the greatest gift to American music theory that we've mm. ever seen. And I think the reason he says that is it, be, is it unveiled the anti-blackness of the field or how, how whiteness has gotten to tell the stories for so long, mm -hmm. right? And then when you have a black individual coming forward and giving his own account and his interpretation and his uh, views on things, how you had this sudden and very swift, at least in academic terms, swift, right? I mean, the journal came right. out a year after, um, but very swift action in response. And I think if you weren't kind of, you didn't have your eyes opened after his talk, you know, if you were at the SMT presentation or you saw a video of it, I wasn't there, but I was able to watch a video of it. Mm -hmm. um, I think seeing all that, what all that unfolded, I think really revealed kind of uh, like uh, the problems within music theory, right? It literally, it made his point. Yeah. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. it made his point. Everything, yeah, that happened from there. Yeah, I didn't actually think of it. Um in terms of the Tulsa race massacre, but I really thought that was a really fitting um, analogy in a lot of ways. I didn't think of that, you know, back in the time, but man, I mean, yeah, the idea of a storytelling and, you know, mm -hmm. who's rewriting what's actually happening and all these different interpretations of this particular situation and the reactions, oh my goodness, you know. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really good um, yeah. comparison, actually. Well, and lots of people outside of our discipline were aware of it, too. I was asked by so many people who are either not music theorists or maybe even not in academic music in any way or whatever, who had seen it, you know, on social media or had read it. There was an article about it in the New York Times or, you know, things like that. And uh, my dean was like, hey, uh, in the New York Times this morning, I read something crazy about 
people you probably know, you know, I mean, <laughs> because I went to UNT and the journal is, is you know, housed at or was housed at, at UNT and the faculty involved, I, I had classes with them. So, um, yeah, I think it opened the door really wide for conversations to happen. Yeah. And I think one thing he brings up that's really valuable in that chapter is the discussion on, you know, this is not really who we are, right? You know, right. the journal doesn't really reflect SMT. And he, and he uses as an analogy, like, you know, the, the January 6th uh, insurrection and people mm -hmm. like, well, that's not really, that's not really what Americans are, right? That's really not, you know, not who we are. And I'm like, yeah, it is. I mean, that's kind of, that shows like white angst right there. <laughs> Right. right. I was, I was, I was listening to somebody, I don't know, it was a different podcast and you're talking about how, you know, black folks have been mistreated for centuries and they've never stormed the Capitol. White people mm. don't win an election or don't get what we want with one election and they, they want to tear it all down. Right. I mean, like that's, that's true. And I think yeah. if you're not willing to say, yeah, that is who we are as a nation, we have that within us. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't we can't ever move forward, and and Yule kind of takes kind of ownership of at least like some of these histories within his own past. Or mm -hmm. he, this is a quote from page one ninety one. Regrettably, in my career, I have been a bricklayer in the fortification of music theory's white male frame, mm -hmm. and over the over the years, I have laid those bricks happily and willingly. I'm like, wow, that's and that's me too, right? Me too. Um, yeah. Me too. Yeah, totally. and yeah, and so I think coming to the terms of yeah that's that's part of us mm -hmm. is is like one of the first steps that we can't just push it aside like oh these, this this addition of the JSS was just an anomaly but it, it really did reveal kind of what's kind of at the core of a lot of our a lot of our research and, and pedagogy yeah yeah and one of the quotes I think um that I took it down in my notes. I've often wondered, maybe some of you out there listening have wondered, you know, if you were to ask Phil Yule, what can I do to be, mm. you know, anti-racist in today's music theory classroom or community or just in general? And he does offer an answer to that here. So if you don't have time to get into the weeds, we can read it. It says, my first answer will always be that we cannot understand what anti-racism in academic music will look like in the future until we understand what racism in academic music looked like in the past. Mm. So there it is. If you don't understand how we got to where we are today, how can we possibly move forward? How can we possibly reconcile what has happened with this and other things and mm -hmm. our entire structure of the music academy? So that's a really good point. I know I've definitely thought about that in the past. You know, what if I could ask Phil Ewell something? What would I ask? And that was definitely on my mind. So that spoke to me. Yeah. And thankfully, he gives a lot, a lot more of those kinds of answers later that dig yeah. down into the yep. sort of things that you can do to do exactly what he what he says there. I think, you know, I think what's profound about the idea of like, well, that's not really us is that when people say that, I suspect what they mean is, well, I don't think, I don't think that, I don't really believe that, I don't, but it doesn't matter if that's how we teach, how we were taught, and all that we ever study and research and publish and talk about. 
So it doesn't matter if we like internally think, you know, no, that's not true. I, I don't believe that, you know, race has anything to do with how talented you are or how good the music is that you make or, you know, any of those things. I, yeah, probably most people would not agree with that. <laughs> I certainly hope so. But it it doesn't matter. That's not the point. It, it is who we are. I mean, I was trained with a textbook that probably had 80% of the examples coming from four or five white men from a span of about 200 years in Europe. I mean, and no one ever said, hey, this is coming from this particular period of time and this particular group of people. And this, like, it was just the way, right? Mm -hmm. That's how I was trained. That's how I was trained to teach. And that is how I taught for a long time. Um, so absolutely, I've been laying those bricks too. It kind of reminds me of the Barbie movie that I just saw. <laughs> I no just spoilers, came back from the... please. All right, so no no spoilers. All right, but <laughs> one of the one of the really interesting things about it. This is not a spoiler. All right, but is that is that you know in Barbie world, Ken is uh, an accessory, right? Like Barbie and the Barbies are the main thing, and then Ken's. The Ken, like he doesn't have a house, right? Like it's, he's just nope. got on the accessory, right? Um, and then Barbie and Ken go to the real world somehow. I won't tell you how they they end up in the real world, <laughs> world, and and Ken learns about patriarchy. And the realization is that the real world is like Barbie world, but flipped, right? Because now <laughs> all the people in power, you know, people that have the authority are the the Kens, the men, basically. And right. women are seen more as accessories, right? But it's, and of course, as a guy, you know, I noticed that in Barber World, I'm like, man, those guys are treated like crap, right? They're kind of like, they're, <laughs> they're, you know, they're kind of, they're like, they're they're not the main thing. They're, they're kind of disregarded or uh, minimized. But then, you know, of course, because I'm living in the real world where, Mm -hmm. Voices like mine historically have been privileged, right? And I don't see that as a problem. I see that just as the normal way of way of being. Um, and of course, I don't believe that's true. But that's how I like. That's our culture that we're in. And so, yeah. you know, it takes reading books like this. It takes watching a movie about Barbie, you know, to help <laughs> us yeah. see the things that we think are normal are actually not right or the way that they are maybe aren't the way they should be and that can lead to very uncomfortable like realizations i think and that's yeah natural and no one likes to hear that they've been doing things wrong or they've, they've dedicated their lives to something that is um you know tainted or is problematic but i feel like that's that's part of living in this world right yeah well and we are mid-career we have the whole rest of our career to do anything we can to make this right and to make sure that our students are not trained the way that we were even if it's just to say to them you know i'm teaching you box style part writing which is a tradition that comes from germany 
in, you know, the 1700s. So that it's not like, this is the one and only way to compose music well, and if you don't follow these rules, I don't know what you're doing. (laughs) And then they leave my classroom and they go to choir and they're singing, you know, in choir and they're like, I all I'm doing here is parallel fifths and none of these chords are C E G. They all have like right. a D in there. What's the D? What is the D? You know, so it's a like, Whitaker chord, an Eric Whitaker chord. You are correct. Chord. Yes, or yes. Which exactly. is a white so, guy, by the way. Nothing against Eric Whitaker. I love Eric Whitaker, but he's yeah. another white guy. So. No, it's true. It's true. But yeah, I mean, so like my this this way that we were taught that we've most of us been teaching because that's what you do, you know, you get your first job and you look at your notebook from class and you say, like, mm-hmm. how did I learn it? I guess that's how I'm going to do it. Or you go to the textbook that you're using. Maybe you don't even have a say in what the textbook is that you're using. Mm-hmm. And you follow that model. And that model is not even making it from my nine o'clock theory one class to the one o'clock choir rehearsal. Like, it's not even lasting <laughs> that breaking down already that long. So, like... That is, I guess, the good news. We can feel badly, and we should feel badly reflecting on the way it has been and the ways that we have been a part of it, but our time is much better spent figuring out how to make it right, you know, for the rest of our career. Right. Well said. Well said. I think, you know, these two chapters... The, there was the chapter on the journal and then the next chapter is on music theories anti-blackness and again it's just full of examples of case studies really um, of experiences from Phil's life where you know his blackness encountered his career negatively and I, I said this before we hit the record button, but these two chapters somehow it read like a novel to me. I could not stop reading. I think it's about maybe 80 or 90 pages, something like that. And I read it all in one morning. I could not, I could not stop. My, <laughs> my husband kept coming into the room being like, are you still reading that book? And I'm like, yes, shh. <laughs> like, I have so much to tell you about it, but right now I just want to read it. Leave me alone. So, it, I mean, it's so good. If you, and and you will learn so much. His writing well, I mean, is yeah. he really doesn't, beautiful. He doesn't shy away from nope. the criticism. I mean, like, some of the emails that he's received and he, he's put in the books are just horrible. Like, yeah. it's disgusting yeah. the way that he was treated. Yeah. Um, and so to be that vulnerable um, yeah. is incredible. But also, unfortunately, I feel like it's necessary to just be like, hey, this is this is what actually happens. Like, I don't have to worry about that. I'm never going to have to deal with that type of treatment. Um, but I have to see it. And um, it's painful. Yeah. Yeah, I even knew what Alan Cadwallader had said in some of those emails yeah. from just, you know, internet circulation and everything. And still it stings so hard and you can't how you think how could he possibly deal with this and yeah being a black person in the music theory world is exhausting isn't that uh, the first sentence i'm not actually reading it out of the book but yeah something it starts like that off with saying something like that and it's, you really get an idea of the depth of that after reading this especially kind of the second half uh of chapter four it really 
Ooh, it comes yeah. alive with personality and exact wording and emails and apology, non-apologies. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so one thing he brings up is the, and this is in chapter five, uh, the interesting scenario with the Outstanding Publication Award mm. that um, SMT gives. And he, he gave a stat that in 35 years, 160 individuals have been awarded that publication award. Only four were not white. So that's a 98% white, and which is clearly problematic. And one way that SMT was trying to maybe correct that or address that was by creating the presidential award, uh, which was just for figures, BIPOC figures, so black, indigenous, people of color, figures in music theory. And Yule correctly diagnoses that basically as like a separate but equal type of measure where... um, they say that the winner of this presidential award would also be eligible for other awards as well, but that this award would just be for uh, BIPOC figures. And um, he was asked about that, and um, he, he made his feelings heard, and uh, I believe uh, that that award has never been actually awarded or, or uh, right. considered, right? They kind of shut that down. Right. Um, and so that's a good example of like like white people trying to do something right but then actually doing the exact opposite like good intentions but actually terrible results and actually reinforcing <laughs> right. the inherent whiteness right yeah yeah, yeah he well, gives, oh go ahead sorry ben. no go ahead ben it kind of comes back to this way he discusses some of the responses as well, which is like segregationist versus yes, assimilationist and like <laughs> this idea of like the separation or a lot of the language he often uses is, are you, are you driving a wedge between separate um, racial groups mm-hmm. um, and the way your uh, policies, practices, and procedures are set up? And that definitely is, yeah, it's, it's driving a wedge between. It's saying like, here's your... BIPOC figures and here's your outstanding qualification award. It's like, oh, right. It doesn't say cringe. here's the white male award <laughs> and here's the BIPOC award, but it could right. say that. And he does give a figure too on how many of those uh, people were women, and it's also pretty yeah. stark. So, yeah. Yeah, he gives an analogy of like if the Academy Awards to make their awards more diverse were to be like, we're going to have a category four best black actor award. You know, that would not go over well, right? No. <laughs> but in a way, that's no. what SMT was trying to do with this award was, you know, uh, doing the same thing. And like, that, no, that, that, that's not good at all. And so he does give some recommendations uh, for kind of correcting these types of issues. Um, one would be creating a minimum number of BIPOC or non-cis individuals um, that that are winning would win, win these awards. Uh, limit the number one person can win. So I guess mm. someone people can win multiple awards, and then award and have, yeah yeah award things retroactively. So so giving you know an award for uh, someone's work that was older than two years so i think it has to be like a two-year span mm-hmm. 
as far as when things are awarded. What do you think about those recommendations? I think they're great. Um, I, I loved it. He gives a very specific recommendation for who should win posthumously, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the award. But what I, what I really like about, first of all, that's a great book. It's a, the Lydian tonal concept. Yeah. It's, it's great. True. If you're a Jacob Collier fan, you've probably heard of it because he talks about it too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, it's such fascinating theory and mm-hmm. research and it's full of really compelling ideas about music and how music is put together. Um, but I think the idea of awarding things, you know, after the fact is to say like, we are making a, a correction. <laughs> like mm-hmm. this is, this is corrective. Like yeah. if we could go back in time, perhaps this is who should have won this award in the year 2000 or whatever, mm-hmm. which is not to say that whoever got it did not do good work. But the, the point is that whoever got it, got it in a vacuum, right? Yeah. Um, where this other work didn't exist as an option to be considered. So, yep. yeah. Yeah, my reaction to it was more like an interesting thought on just the power and the way Music Academy is structured. Certainly publication awards are a key part of that you mm-hmm. have public who's publishing for one thing and then who is getting publication awards and then promotions and then you've got it seems to me it was just like really revealing how that is a part of the cycle of overturning the power of whiteness from generation to generation publication awards are a really key component in that um, because you can kind of see when you zoom out to the next level and you see wow okay, yeah, this person gets a publication award. They probably use that in their promotion packet, and then they probably have tenure, and then they're probably appointing the next person that receives the next publication award. And Yeah, you you start to really see. I mean, it happened so many times just reading this whole book in my head where you start to say, wow, there's like this one case study, but then the problem itself, you start to see how it becomes such a huge problem and how music theory is not very welcoming. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's my that was my thought, Paul. Good question. I was just gonna say again. I said this maybe in our first episode about the book, but first of all, kudos to Phil for hanging in there all this time. Reading those emails, there are many times where I might have thought, "I am done with this. Like, I am done. I'm done. I'm not. I I don't want to be a part of this anymore." Um, but he has not done that. And the tone of this book is so hopeful, Mm. um, for as much as it is talking about really difficult things and challenging us, it is so kind (laughs) and Mm. it's very hopeful and really believes in his colleagues. That's why he wrote this book, because he believes in those of us in the field that we want to hear it, we want to learn, and we want to to do differently in the future. Um, So again, like Phil, I have no idea if you listen to our podcast, but if you do, thank you for doing this work because you would not have had to, and you did, and we're very grateful for that. Yeah, we're all all in a place where we can change, right? I think, and that is the the exciting and the, the humbling part about it is that we have this opportunity 
and a, a responsibility, right, to to make mm-hmm. changes in our own theory classrooms, and then you know enough of us do those things, you know things things are going to change, and things have changed so much already within the past you know three mm-hmm. four years since his original talk at SMT. So um, we're hopeful that the the arc is turning towards a more just world and more. Uh, open world for everyone to make music so, um, yeah. that requires us to do all all work and uh, to keep on growing keep on learning and so that seems like a good place to stop for today I think I think so yeah, yeah. and so thank you uh, so much for listening in and we'll be back with our final installment the first ever Note Doctors book club where we finish up talking about Phil Yules on music theory and making music more welcoming for everyone. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.